You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 149, Networks. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to another episode of You Don't Know Flat. Today is, let's look here, May 10th, 2014, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about computer networks. And I know that sounds like a horribly boring topic, but, uh, you know, I have old stories about everything, so uh, hopefully this will be enjoyable. Um, I've been away from the mic for a little bit. I have been out of town uh, on a work trip in Las Vegas. And, um, so that's a a twofer. One is I recorded this entire podcast on a cassette tape, which I am now loading into a data set, which is connected to my Commodore 64. And I will be transferring the podcast over, but that might take a little bit. So we may have a longer than normal loading time going on. So let's go ahead and get that started. And, uh, while this is transferring over, we will begin this week's loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. So, it is good to be back home. It's good to be back on the mic. Uh, Like I said, I've been in Las Vegas for a couple of weeks attending a Microsoft boot camp put on by a uh, third-party company, I guess you would say, a training company. Um, I did not know what a boot camp was. That's not true. I didn't know what a boot camp was. Uh, but I never attended one. I've never experienced one. So, uh, what a boot camp is is a short, condensed class in which you are fed uh, data or information uh, through a fire hose. <laughs> is the best way to explain it. Um, just rapid fire information over a short period of time for the goal of getting you to pass uh, computer certification tests. Now, what are certification tests or certs as we call them in the field? Certs are basically a certification that says, I know this. Now, in the computer field, a lot of times uh you say, well, how do you know this? And the reason you give is from experience. How do you know how to, you know, work on routers? Well, because I worked on routers at my last job and someone showed me how to do it and I know how to, how to do it, you know, but, um, assert is a way where you can say this company has information, uh, Cisco or whoever has information and I have learned all their information and I have passed their test. So I am certified. I have a piece of paper that says, I know this information. Now there are, um, what we call paper, um, certs and paper MCSEs. And I'll talk about that just a little bit here. But, um, so I went to bootcamp, by the way, I, I don't know if you can hear, there are birds outside my window. It is spring here in Oklahoma. And I have had a group of birds, 
uh, build a nest right outside my window. And not only are they there, but they're very loud and upset that I'm in my uh, room here. I've pulled the shades down, but that has not dissuaded them. So if you can hear birds uh, chattering and they're saying in bird language, please stop talking. Uh, so I'm going to have to work out some sort of arrangement agreement with the birds here. But anyway, um, so what I attended was a Microsoft boot camp, which was intended to get you your MCSA and MCSE in a period of two weeks. Now, if you're not familiar with, uh, certs and Microsoft certs in general, you, that sounds like a bunch of alphabet soup and may not sound, uh, impressive and or intimidating. Uh, the reality is Microsoft, um, and they, they change their certs so that, uh, a long time ago, uh, they had MCSA and MCSE and, um, uh, it stood for Microsoft certified systems administrator and system engineer. So the lower one is like, you know, basically you have a piece of paper that says I'm qualified to run a network An engineer is I'm qualified to design a network. So, and the MCSE builds on the MCSA. So you got the MCSA first and you built on top of that. Now, uh, they went away from those initials and they came up with a very convoluted scheme over the last few years and everybody hated it and everybody begged for them to change it back. And so they have changed it back. They are back to MCSA and MCSE, but uh, in true Microsoft fashion, they don't stand for what they used to stand for. Now, MCSA is a Microsoft Certified Solutions Associate, and MCSE is Microsoft Certified Solutions Expert. They are uh, identical to what they used to be. I mean, one is for the, uh, the, the first certification is saying that you know how to run a network, and the last one is saying you know how to design one and implement everything that you've learned. Um, I have friends of mine... Uh, I have read online. I know people that have studied for these tests for six months to a year and gone in and taken these tests. Um, and it's a series of tests, I should say, uh, for your MCSA. Um, well, first of all, they're different, what they call tracks. So essentially for MCSA and MCSE, you're looking at either a workstation track or a server track. So if you're a person that does desk side support, you work on a help desk, you want to know everything there is about Windows 8 now, um, then you would go on the workstation track. If you're a back-end guy like myself, you do servers and networking and things like that, you would want to take the server track. So to get your MCSA, you have to pass three different tests, uh, and these are Microsoft written exams. I did learn that the... Uh, Exam people, I guess, also have ties with the marketing people. So it is no coincidence that the newest features, the features that Microsoft wants you to know about, the things they want you to take and, and take back with you to your organization, all tend to be heavily tested on. So uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. But anyway, uh, for the MCSA, there are three tests. They're known by numbers. They're 410, 411, and 412. 410 is installing and configuring Windows Server 2012. 411 is administering Windows Server 2012. And 412 is configuring advanced Windows Server 2012 services. Uh, so you can take each one of these tests. Usually um, at the testing centers I go to, I believe they it's $150 per test. And you go in... And uh, this is normal circumstances. So let's say you wanted to take this first test, 410. Uh, you would buy a book. I have a book on this. It's about 800 pages. 
and it has everything you would ever want to know about Windows Server 2012. It has a lot of things you do not want to know about Server 2012, things that you didn't think that you wanted to know, things that you never thought you were going to have to learn. Uh, This is Server 2012 from the bottom up. I mean, every detail. What's in every screen? How does everything work? You know, a lot of people, uh, if you're just a typical end user, you turn on your computer, um, you get an IP address, and you connect to the internet. You might not even know that much. You just know, hey, I turn on my computer and get to the internet. But there are a lot of things that happened uh, for that to be possible. I mean, you had to get an IP address. IP addresses either come from your wireless router or maybe like I have a server here at my house that does IP addresses and IP addresses, um, you know, can't cross routers unless you have a DHCP relay agent and that goes on a specific port and you have to configure your gateway. And I mean, it goes on and on and on into details. And so just DHCP, just the way that, um, computers are automatically assigned IP addresses. You could spend a few weeks learning in a Microsoft bootcamp you will spend about 10 to 15 minutes on DHCP and then you'll move on. And so it is up to you to take um, that information and go and run with it and go do more studying. Now um, for the, um, the class that I was in was two weeks long. Now, again, remember what I said that some people can spend months studying for one test. This was a two week long class uh, that covered all five tests and we took the tests in class. So the first day that we showed up to class, this boot camp. and by the way, uh, let me back up here. This boot camp was in Las Vegas. So everybody I know was like, Oh my gosh, you are so lucky. You're going to get a two week trip to Vegas for work. And I, I don't mind saying, I mean, that sounded pretty good to me. You know, I like Las Vegas. I've been to Vegas several times for DEF CON and the classic gaming expo and just on vacations and stuff. So, uh, I love Las Vegas. So, um, first of all, this class was held at the La Quinta Inn at the airport. So we're not at the strip. I mean, we are off the strip. Now, if you want to talk about torture, I can see the strip from my hotel room, (laughs) but we are not close enough to the strip to go. Now, I, um, if you've listened to other episodes of You Don't Know Flack, you know that I pretty much avoid flying at all costs. And so I drove to Las Vegas, which is 16 hours from Oklahoma. So uh, I, I did it over the weekend before. So I had already spent two days on the road, Saturday and Sunday and showed up at the La Quinta and the class was at the hotel in a meeting room. So, uh, there were roughly a dozen people in class. We showed up and we got our first book the first day. And the first book has, uh, 13 or 14 chapters. And the instructor said, we're going to cover those 13 or 14 chapters, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And by Thursday, we're having our first test. And I remember looking at this book and thinking, this is crazy. How are we going to cover this much material? I don't want to spoil it, but later on, we're covering that much material every day. I mean, the pace ramped up. That was the, hey, get used to a boot camp pace. That was the slow pace, was a book every three days. Um, so you get into this boot camp, and, and um, I guess there, there's a couple of misnomers about boot camps. One is... That I would say one misnomer that I had was that it's basically a gimme. Um, this class is expensive. Now we ha- have 
agreements and arrangements and we have uh, tech support that we could change into. So we didn't actually have to pay full price for this, but if you were to pay for this boot camp out of your pocket, it's a little over $7,000. It's about $7,500. Um, so the way that different companies get you to sign up for a boot camp is they offer a pass rate. I mean, they'll, they might advertise and say, Hey, we have a 90% pass rate, meaning 90% of the people that take our class get their certification. Now, Based on that, I was under the assumption, and a very incorrect assumption, that by taking this class, you're basically buying a certification. And I have to tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, This was not a gimme at all. On average, I slept four to five hours a night. We did class, some days, 12 hours worth of class. We would leave class. Go get dinner. By the way, uh, we had breakfast at the hotel, um, and then we had, well, <laughs> we were supposed to. I had my car, so occasionally, I, uh, well, not occasionally, most days, I slipped down to uh, McDonald's, which was a block away. But most people had breakfast at the hotel. We all had a catered lunch at the hotel, so we didn't leave. So the only time you could really leave would be at night after class. Now, some days we had class up to 12 hours, and we would leave go get some dinner, come back, study. I would go to bed around 11.30, midnight, and set my alarm every day for 4 a.m. I would get up at 4 a.m. and study from 4 to 8, and then go down, run to McDonald's, be back, and class would start at 8.30. So um, it this was not an easy thing to do. This was not a... Um, I, I, I really had the impression, and, and I got this impression online and from other people, that if you pay the money... You're basically buying your certifications. I will tell you this. Um, my class for all five exams had less than a 50% pass rate. Now, I don't know how the company comes up with their pass rates, and I think it may be because people, you're allowed to retake classes and retake tests later, and so there were some people that said when they get back home, they're going to retake tests, um, but it was very, very difficult to do. So that would be the biggest uh, misnomer I had. Um, what else can I tell you? The, um, the exams for Microsoft exams, uh, the score goes from, uh, up to a thousand and a passing grade is 700, uh, which is, I mean, basically a C or better, uh, and each question you get uh, anywhere from usually around 55 questions, I think was about average. And the questions are worth roughly 20 points each. So, uh, you know, there was a couple of tests. There was one test I passed with a score of like 727, which is only one question. I mean, so there was, you know, just ones that I skated by. And then I had some that were in the mid 800s, you know, so I felt really strong about those. But there were people, there were some people in my class that um, didn't pass any of the tests. And in fact, there were a couple of people, at least two people throughout the two weeks that um, quit the class. One person uh, took the first test and came out and, you know, seemed a little bit uh, befuddled and just said, you know what, this is past his his skill level and he's going to, you know, bow out now and come back and take the class later. And he left. Uh, and we had another student later on in the uh, second week that went AWOL. <laughs> he just <laughs> quit coming to class and we went and looked at his hotel room and He didn't answer the room and somebody went, he had uh, actually driven and they looked for his car and couldn't find his car. So uh, apparently he just left and didn't tell anybody. So it's definitely a high pressure 
Um, there was a uh, one morning. It's like five in the morning, and I, it was a morning of a test. And I've got um, two laptops open. I have a the class laptop in my hotel room where I'm running through um, a practice exam and I'm, I'm looking over and I'm realizing that I don't know anything that's going to be on this test. I've got a the study guide, the class manual open, and I have a, a book, uh, you know, this Windows Server 2012 book open. Uh, plus I have my personal laptop where I'm Googling uh, different things where it's, you know, um, not everything that's on the exam is things that you may have had experience with. There was a lot of things on, on the later exams that had to do with uh, setting up Hyper-V, which is um, uh, virtual Microsoft's virtual server environment. And I am familiar with VMware. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about that uh, way later in this episode. But uh, so and this is things I've never had exposure to in its terminology and settings. And uh, I mean, it gets into some pretty uh, detailed trivia, you know, like what... PowerShell command would you run to do this and this and this? I mean, there's one I remember specifically talking about what PowerShell command would you run if you have a server that has a RealFX 3D card and you want to enable RealFX um, video features on your virtual servers. This is not something that most people know or ever will need to know. Uh, So it's, I mean, this is, some of it is straight up trivia. And I remember having this moment, it's like five in the morning. I've, uh, there was a Keurig, uh, single shot coffee maker in the bathroom of the hotel and I've got my coffee and I'm sitting there and I almost started crying. I mean, I could feel uh, my chin start to quiver and I'm like, Oh God, I can't do this. You know, I'm just, uh, you know, a week and a half in and I'm just sleep deprived and tired and homesick and tired of learning about um, Microsoft products. And I thought to myself, I can't do this, you know? And, um, I did do it. I did eventually do it. But I, I had this this moment. There's a a, a scene in, God, what is it? Uh, Real Genius, I think, where they're all studying. They're studying for finals, and they're in the library. And this guy just gets up and has a total freakout moment. He just starts screaming and yelling, and he runs out the library, and everybody kind of watches him. And then they turn the page and they go back to studying. And that's what I felt like. I was like, okay, you had your freakout moment. You got it passed. Let's get back to studying. And so, um, I did pass all five exams. So I passed the first three and earned my MCSA. And then I passed the last two. The last two tests we covered in four days. Uh, And by the way, this class, when I say it was two weeks, uh, we went to school Monday through Friday and Saturday and Sunday. There was no break for the weekend. The following week, and then our final test was that Saturday. So the last, the MCSE portion was four days, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So on Wednesday, we got a book and we read a book on Wednesday. We took a test on Thursday and got out a little bit early. Uh, and then we came back and we read a book on Friday and we took our final test on Saturday. So, I mean, it was not easy. Um, but, uh, I did it. And like I said, there were about a dozen people in my class and I think there were five altogether who went from, uh, all the way through the MCSE. And I know there are some people that, um, you know, it takes some people a little bit longer to assimilate information. There were people of different, uh, technical backgrounds and different ages. And, um, so I, I know that there are some of the people that I, uh, I definitely feel like they're going to go back and do a little bit more studying and take some more tests and stuff. And I, I think they're going to be able to do it. So I don't know that I would, um, 
this is the other thing I guess I would mention. A friend of mine uh, who has been studying for these tests, he studied for these tests, and, and this is a very technical guy. I would put him uh, past me on technical level, I mean, as far as uh, servers and networking and things like that. And he studied for months and went and took the test and didn't pass. And after I told him I'd passed the first couple of tests, he sent me an email and said, I want to know how are you learning this material uh, you know, what can I do to better learn this material and pass these exams? And I sent him an email back and I said, you know what? I think you are asking me two different questions because number one, there's so much information, uh, in these books about windows server 2000, about networking, about CIDR addresses. If you've ever done that, if you've done gateways and routers and all this stuff, it is impossible in two weeks to learn everything about everything. And so what a boot camp does, more than give you the answers, more than, uh, you know, help you. I mean, it's not cheating, but what it is is it, it helps you focus on what is going to be on the exams. In other words, these are people who have already taken the exams. And so they can say, you know, um, PowerShell is uh, Microsoft's newest scripting language. And so they can tell you things like, you know, we used to do things with Visual Basic. We don't do that anymore. Learn PowerShell. Learn more about PowerShell. Uh, and so they can kind of guide you into what to study on. And sometimes they're more specific than other times. I mean, they might say, oh, you know, it would be a good idea to really learn how to uh, move a GPO from one domain to another using PowerShell. And so you go, aha, you know, I, I definitely need to learn that process. So sometimes it's specific. Other times it's, you know, more generic, like, hey, you need to learn how, you know, learn everything about Hyper-V, learn how failover clusters work and how round-robin DNS works and all these different things. So, uh, so it's not that they're giving you the answers for the test, but they are telling you what to study in a short amount of time. So I, I think, you know, the boot camp is valuable for that. But I think if you spent a month learning, let's just say DNS on your own. So you get a book on DNS and you learn DNS and you learn DNS inside and out. I don't think that necessarily means you can pass these exams and vice versa. I think if you go to a boot camp and you learn, you know, what you're going to need to know about DNS for the exam, I don't think you know more about DNS than that person who has spent a month studying it, you know? So, um, definitely I would say, uh, you know, it, it's two different things. And, and that was what I was trying to, to stress to my friend is that there are, you know, knowing the things and passing the tests are two different things. So if you, you know, a boot camp is, is very valuable. If you want a, like I said, a fire hose, uh, I mean, you just want a blast of information over a short amount of time and you need to pass the exams. Um, that's what a boot camp is for. If you want, you know, you just need to learn it and, there are a ton of good training videos out there. There's a ton of great information out on YouTube as I was looking for, um, you know, cliff notes type, uh, you know, like tell me more about this or how does hyper V, uh, you know, this work or that work. There's a lot of stuff out there on YouTube. So if you just want to self study and do things like that, um, there, there's, uh, there's good information out there and there's a lot of free stuff. So anyway, I did uh, pass my final exam. I got my little certificate. I am now a Microsoft Certified Solutions Associate and a Solutions Expert, MCSA and MCSE. Uh, I will soon be one of those annoying people that adds all those little initials to their email. 
uh, I probably won't do that actually. Um, you know, I always kind of feel like, um, this is my personal opinion because I, I think it's, some people do that, you know, so that they're saying, Hey, you know, I know what I'm talking about, but in my experience, when I've done that in the past, this is like an invitation for people to argue with you. Like they say, Oh, Mr. MCSE. Well, one time I did that. It's like stump the IT guy, you know, and I just don't get off on that. Like people trying to one up me on knowledge or things like that. So I probably won't actually put that in my email address, but, um, anyway, so that's where I've been the last couple of weeks. Uh, like I said, I did get my, uh, certification and I am back home. I've learned more about windows server 2000, uh, than I ever thought I wanted to know. And a lot of that was about networking. And so on the drive home, I started thinking, man, I've had a long history with uh, setting up computer networks. And it doesn't seem like it's been that long, but uh, I've been doing networking stuff for a long time. So I started thinking of these old stories, and I thought, you know what? This might make a good episode of You Don't Know Flag. So uh, if you have any feedback, I should do this before we get started about this episode or any other episode of the show, you can email me at robohara at robohara.com or leave a message for me in the You Don't Know Flag voicemail box at 405-486-YDKF. Uh, and so, oh, hey, look at that. The cassette tape has stopped. Uh, everything has been transferred from the data set through the Commodore 64 over here. So now I can go ahead and get this started with this week's episode of You Don't Know Flag, all about networking. As I have mentioned many times on this show, uh, my first personal computer, my first experience with personal computers was with a TRS-80 Model 3, which my father purchased back in 1980. Uh, we moved to a Apple II compatible, and uh, then we had a PC Junior and a Commodore 64. Um, so th- we had more computers in our house at a time when and a lot of people didn't you know, have a computer at all. Um, But since they were different brands of computers, there was really no reason to move information from one computer to another. If I did my homework on the PC Junior, I would save it on a floppy or print it out and take it in. There was no reason for me to ever need to move that information over to my Commodore or vice versa, you know. So uh, the information stayed on one computer. So um, the thought... The concept of computer networking was beyond me at that point. Computer networking to me was modems. If I wanted to move something from one computer to another, you know, I mean, I might send myself a message. I I don't think I ever did this, but in theory, you could send yourself a message on a BBS and read it on a a different computer later or something like that. But, um, uh, you know, like I said, since we had different brands of computers that were not compatible in our house, there was no reason to move things from one machine to another. And if I wanted to move things from one Commodore to another, well, then you copied uh, the disc, you know? So when I went to someone's house, if we were going to copy games or whatever, I would take my computer and my floppy drives and they would have their computer and their floppy drives and you would copy disks and and trade them back and forth, you know? So uh, that the concept of connecting those machines um, although, and it would have been a moot point, you know, pre hard drive anyway, but the thought of connecting machines and moving data back and forth, um, I, I just had no concept of that. And of course I, uh, my dad didn't have computers at his work like that. So there was no 
exposure, you know, to, um, you know, like dumb terminals and mainframes and things like that back then. So, uh, you know, there was just no, no reason to do it. Now, when we move to the PC and later on, and this is probably late, 80s. I mean, we had PCs. We had a PC Junior in the early 80s, and we had an XT. Uh, but I'm talking my own personal computer, uh, which I would have got um, in the early 90s. This was, this would have been like 92, 93, somewhere around there. I got my own computer. I got a 386, and I got a. Uh, I think my first hard drive was a 40 meg hard drive on that computer. I mean, uh, you know, I. I when I was a kid, I remember my dad uh, getting, you know, a five meg hard drive or whatever. So, uh, but, but my first hard drive on a computer that I owned, uh, was, was on a, a 386. Uh, I believe this was a DX 40. It was a screaming machine for at the time, you know, that was the first one I had. I actually later got computers that were slower than that. My BBS was a, uh, 386, um, either a 25 or a 16. I mean, uh, so I, I had owned slower computers later, but this first one I bought was a, uh, I believe a DX 40. The big deal was that it had a math co-processor. Uh, and I think my first hard drive was a 40 meg. And back then we used stacker. I don't know if anybody remembers stacker anymore, but stacker would, was a software solution that allowed you to double the uh, size of your hard drive. So basically it was like compressing a hard drive like um, you could do in Windows today. Uh, and Microsoft came up with Double Disk, which was their version of Stacker. Well, the funny thing about it was it was kind of like PKZip. If you've ever zipped a file, there are certain things that zip and certain things that don't zip. I mean, you can zip them up, but they don't compress well. A text document, for example, compresses very well because there's a lot of empty space in a text document. And you can really compress those down. Something like an MP3 is a compressed music file. It doesn't compress at all. In fact, you could take an MP3 and zip it. It might make it bigger. Um, so, you know, and Stacker worked the same way. It compressed your hard drive. So if you had a 40 meg hard drive and you stacked it, uh, it would be 80 meg. You'd be like, that's incredible. But as you put files on there, you didn't always get double the space. But um, uh, anyway, you know, around that time, we were still trading information through floppies. But as files got bigger and bigger, uh, you know, I like I remember going to people's houses and just taking a box of floppies and copying disks and stuff. But, uh, you know, you started thinking, well, if there was a way where you could connect these machines, like I remember taking my hard drive out of my computer. I took it to a guy's house and we hooked it up inside his computer and moved files over that way, you know. So there, there was still no easy way. And, of course, this is way, way back in um, the days of dial-up. Um, I don't even think I had a 14.4 at that point. I probably had like a 9,600 baud modem maybe. Um, so the first thing that I saw come out, um, were these serial cables, like a null modem cable. And it was a cable that had a serial, uh, you know, a female serial end on in, each end of this cable, nine pin female, and this program, well, you could, you could hook up modem programs. And basically you were sending information over a serial, you know, it's like over a modem cable, but instead of calling someone, you were connecting two PCs. Now, back then, I mean, a PC, this was a tower. I, you know, I didn't know anybody that had a laptop at this point. So, uh, you're dragging your tower and your monitor and all your crap and you'd set it up at someone's house or whatever. And, and use the serial cable. And it wasn't very friendly. Um, but then the breakthrough that came was lap link. 
and Laplink used um, a parallel cable. So a parallel, of course, has 25 pins, and uh, it can move data. Is it 25 or 15? No, it's 25. Um, but it can move data a lot faster. I mean, it's a much larger bus. And so you could hook, um, you know, two computers up with Laplink, and you'd launch Laplink, and it would split the screen. I mean, this is DOS. This is a DOS program uh, back then. And fire it up. You could boot off a boot disk and boot up into, I mean, like a, a floppy disk. You could have DOS on it and Laplink. There was enough room on one floppy for this. You would boot up, and on the left-hand side of your screen would have your hard drive, like the directories and stuff. And on the right-hand side would be the other person's. And so you could copy things back and forth over that, that parallel cable. And so this is really the first time that I thought of networking, you know, where you could connect two computers and move things back and forth. And it was very little setup. I mean, like I said, you booted and you ran lap link and that was it. You know, it was very easy to do. Uh, and around this time, there were some uh, games that supported um dial-up, uh, modem, you know, so, so you could call your friend with a game and the two of you could play. I remember, um, Spectre VR. I think I've mentioned that game before. It's a game that I originally saw on the Mac, but, um, I later saw it on the PC and you could dial. It was, um, kind of like a capture the flag meets battle zone. It looked a lot like battle zone. I mean, it was, um, you know, uh, line drawings, geometric shapes and tanks. And you ran around shooting other tanks and, and capturing flags and things. Uh, but Spectre VR had a thing where you could call another person. So they would launch their game. You launched yours and you would connect and you could play over the modem. Well, some of these games began supporting null modem connections. So if you had two computers side by side and you connected them with a null modem cable, you could play with another person on their computer. And so this was like, you're like, holy crap, this is cool, you know? And I remember um, uh, Battle Chess supported a null modem connection. Um, what else? Dungeon Keeper. I think Dungeon Keeper 2 supported it. Um, Archon Ultra. And, and my friend had, uh, my buddy Jeff had Archon Ultra, which was Archon, but it had been redone with like VGA graphics. And it supported dial-up, and we played it dial-up, where you would call each other. Um, but we also tried it with the null modem cable, and it worked. But the the game that really brought the, everything to, uh, I mean, it, this is the game that, that sold it, was Doom and Doom 2. Uh, Doom and Doom 2 supported, you know, we didn't call it network play back then. We just called it, you know, null modem cable or, or uh, whatever. And you would hook these things up and launch it. And all of a sudden you could have two people playing Doom against each other. And that was the coolest thing. I mean, it was like, you know, I had... Um, uh, grown up playing laser tag and photon. If you haven't heard the, you don't know flack episode about photon. I think that's a really good one. Uh, and doom was like virtual photon. It was you and another human being running around in the same maze, chasing each other and trying to blow each other up with the BFG 9,000 or whatever. <laughs> so, um, you know, this was a cool thing. This was a reason why you would, your buddy would bring his computer to your house and you would hook him up on a kitchen table and do back to back and play, um, doom two against each other. Now, uh, this is all happening very fast because I, you know, I got my first PC, I mean, probably in 93 and we're doing all this. And, uh, in 94, I had uh, the gathering four and I've talked about the gatherings a little bit on the uh, brotherhood of four Oh five episode. 
Um, so we had this party and my buddy Josh said, Hey, you know, is it cool if we do like a land party thing too? And I said, yeah, sure. I don't know what that is, but, but that sounds like fun. And he's like, Oh, we bring computers and we hook them up. I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, like no modem cables. And he's like, well, kind of. So we're having this party and it's a whole bunch of computer geeks and, um, we have beer and I have brought like my Commodore and Atari 2600, which were, um, you know, retro, but not retro like they are now. I mean, this would have been in 94. So, you know, Commodore was 10 years old or 12 years old at the time. So, you know, people are like, oh, but they knew what it was. There were, there were still people that, you know, not that use Commodore on a daily basis at that point, but, but it wasn't that old. Uh, and then these guys start bringing in their, their towers and I'm like, oh, this is cool. And this guy has a big, you know, like a, a shoe box filled with network cards and a hub and all these cables. And I'm like, what is this? You know? And so they proceeded to put network cards in everyone's computer and wire all this stuff up. And all of a sudden, this is the first time I've ever seen this. Basically they have set up their own LAN and everybody has to boot off of a boot disc to get the, uh, the drivers, you know, for the network cards. And you can watch on the, on the hub as the lights begin to light up and the computers come online and suddenly they're playing, you know, four player doom, or I think it supported maybe up to eight player doom two or whatever. But, uh, you know, so we have this whole table and I remember watching that and I was like, oh my God, this is the future. Like people are going to create places where you go to do this. I mean, it's like, like I saw the vision of, of a land center in 1994, you know, uh, it it was amazing to me. That was like virtual reality. Uh, that was the future. Like I, I was like, they're going to have tournaments. They're going to have, you know, this is incredible. I never seen anything like that. Um, and, uh, yeah. So my buddy, Josh, that had kind of organized that. I remember going over to his house one time and it was this old two story house and he had computers just like in each room computers all over the place, like one on the floor by a beanbag and one next to a recliner and one somewhere else. And, um, you know, they would do something like descent. I don't know if, if you've ever heard of descent, it was a multiplayer game like, uh, doom. I think it was by ID, I think, but, um, uh, maybe not. Uh, but it was a multiplayer and, and instead of running around like in doom, you were in a spaceship so the, the difference was it was, um, zero gravity. So you could rotate 360 degrees and fly around, but it was, you, you flew around and shot each other in spaceships versus, you know, running around on the ground and shooting each other with, um, machine guns or whatever. But, uh, I, so you would go to his house and they would be like, oh, we're playing descent, go find a computer. And so you would wander into some other room and find a computer that was loaded up and then you would just join the game. So I might go to my friend's house and never see my friend or not see him for long because you'd be in another room. But, uh, so it was kind of like a land center, but with the computers in different rooms and stuff, it was very futuristic. I mean, when I think of like the movie hackers and, um, uh, you know, or like people would just go and be in this virtual reality kind of thing that, I mean, I think of Josh's house like that, you know, um, uh, where people would just go in, you would go to a physical location, but you don't care about seeing the, the physical person, you know, because you're all playing this game. But now keep in mind at this time, this is all, um, land and not WAN, um, land local area network, whereas WAN is a wide area network. So WAN is like what we would call the internet or, uh, you know, uh, networking between distances where LAN is everybody's physically connected to the same switch. And so this was, um, a LAN, you know, this is still pre, um, 
not pre-internet, but pre-acceptance. Uh, it's pre-World Wide Web, basically. Uh, I mean, maybe not technically, but it's before any of us had ever seen the internet, you know. So we're all playing, and we're all connected to, um, uh, you know, physically connected to these machines. So there was no remote playing for us. Uh, it was uh, the fall of uh, 94 when I started working for Best Buy and I worked there for um, less than a year before I moved to um, uh, a federal help desk. And, uh, and Jeff worked on this help desk and he called me, he said, Hey, they're, they're uh, hiring on this help desk, but you have to know about networking. And I was like, I don't know anything about networking. And he's like, sure you do. Yeah, all you have to know is like what the things that we do to get Doom to work. You know, you have to load network cards and you have to load drivers and, and, uh, you know, net buoy. And, and these were all like separate files that you would load in DOS back then. And, uh, I was like, well, maybe I do. Like, I didn't know anything about servers yet, but, but I knew the basics of getting machines connected, you know, from hooking up, uh, cables and all that. So I went and applied for this job. And, uh, during the interview, the guy asked me a bunch of questions about, uh, computers and this and that. And then he slid two pieces of paper across the desk. And one was a config sys and one was an auto exec bat. Now I, half of me thinks everybody on this podcast knows what those are, but in case you don't, if you're young and your only exposure to computers is, you know, windows and GUI based or Linux based maybe, um, or Mac based, whatever, uh, back in the DOS days, you had two boot up files. You had your config sys and your auto exec bat. And those were the files that you manually edited and you would load your drivers. And there were all these little tricks because you were always trying to free up, uh, you know, how much Ram your machine had. And, and, uh, but you had to load your mouse drivers and, and anything that you wanted to run to execute, you put in your auto exec. So, uh, these were things that if you, you know, grew up in DOS, uh, you know, that you, especially if you were a gamer or, you know, a, a intermediate to advanced computer user, you knew how to modify your config sys and auto exec bat, or you knew somebody who would do it for you. So, uh, th this guy slides these pieces of paper across to me and it's a printed out config sys and an auto exec bat. And he's like, can you explain to me, can you read these to me and tell me what these things are? And I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh yeah, here's where you, you're loading a uh, high mem here. And this is your EMM 386 and here's your mouse driver. And then down at the end, there's these four things. And it was like 3C509, which was the 3Com network driver. And this is uh, IPX ODI and NetBuoy. And I was like, oh, this is your network, network, network. And the guy's eyes lit up and he was like, hey man, this kid knows about networks. And so they offered me the job and really, so I got that job, uh, because I had learned how to do all that stuff to hook up machines, to play doom Two, And, um, not to, not to go off on a, on a side tangent, but my kid plays a lot of online games. He plays a lot of PlayStation three. He plays a lot of Minecraft. He does these things. And I don't, um, Obviously, we want to limit how much time, you know, we don't want him to play games 24 hours a day, but I don't really get onto him too much because I think some of the the most important things that I learned that have helped me in my computing career, at least that got me started, I learned from playing games. I mean, I learned how to do, you know, modem config strings and all that so that I could call BBSs. And I learned, uh, you know, 
basic programming to write programs and write little menu things and later on to edit uh, uh, CNET BBS on the Commodore. And I learned how to do batch files so that I could run little things on, on my PC. And all those things are things that I brought into the workforce with me. So when I see my kid, um, you know, getting his machine, his laptop online so he could play Minecraft, I'm like, he's figuring out how to get an IP address. He's figuring out, you know, this doesn't work because I, you know, I have my firewall on and all these little things. So, uh, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I've heard people say, well, my kid plays games or whatever, but I want him to get serious about computer. Well, sometimes some of the things that, uh, you know, it takes to play games online these days are learning things about how computers work. So anyway, uh, so I, I got the job and I got the job because I knew how to hook up networks and I knew how to connect networks because we had played Doom 2. Uh, and so I, I come into this work area and they're like, well, we have servers. I'm like, oh crap. I don't know anything about servers. And they were running Novell server 3.1, which is a really old version now of Novell. In fact, um, after I'd been there for a couple of years, uh, I got put on a project where I flew all around the country and had to upgrade servers to 3.1.2, I believe, because that was the version that was Y2K compatible. So I was during the whole Y2K scare, Y2K bug, I was uh, in the middle of it. We were flying around um, upgrading government machines because uh, we didn't want it to affect, you know, we didn't know what it was going to affect. And we had a lot of mainframe-based applications and a lot of old applications that pulled information from mainframes, and we were uh, a little bit concerned that Y2K was, not that planes were going to fall out of the sky, but that data and safety records could be corrupted, um, which is uh, not an immediate threat, but definitely something we did not want to happen. But uh, so anyway, I got this job and now I'm, I'm supporting computers and networking. And, and uh, there was a server set up there at work, like a test server, and we could do that. And so I, I hooked things up and unhooked them and hooked machines up and, and uh, started learning Novell and learning, you know, how to, I made my first networking cable. If you've ever done that or not done that, I, I think it's, uh, unless you're doing custom runs anymore, it's, it's really not practical, but, uh, where you would strip the thing and there's a little eight wires and you put the end on and the little, uh, crimper and you'd crimp your own end. So I did all that. It was really fun. And, uh, our networks had, were split, uh, between SMC cards and three comp cards. And somebody eventually decided that we were going to be all three com. Uh, so we were going to get rid of, basically we were going to travel around the country, find all the SMC cards and yank them out and throw them away and replace them with three com. So that way everything would be standard. So, uh, that's what we did. So they, they put us on these teams and we flew around and I flew out to Atlanta. This is like, I think probably the first work trip I ever went on. So this is probably 1995. And I go out to Atlanta, and this office in Atlanta has um, hundreds of machines, and half of them have SMC cards and half have three com. So, we found all the SMC cards, pulled them all out, replaced them with three com, and and you know we ended up with, I don't know, maybe a hundred SMC cards that were slated for the trash. And so, um, they said, you know, take these cards and throw them away. And I'm like, would it be cool if I I kept a couple of them because I have some computers at home. And I want to hook up a network. And I, it was one of those things where they were like, well, you're not supposed to do that. This is government equipment and you're supposed to 
access it and throw it away. I mean, literally, this was not going to be used by anybody else. Um, it was being thrown away. But tell you what, you can be the person in charge of taking it out to the trash, wink, wink. And I was like, okay, I, I, I'm reading between the lines here. Uh, so I got like four network cards. That was going to be enough for me. And then there was all this cable because we'd replaced all these old cables. So I took all this extra cable, like these old cables, and I was going to put new ends on them and stuff. And so I shove all this stuff. Now I have like one suitcase and there's no room in it. So I put all this stuff in my backpack. And um, we're leaving Atlanta and go to the airport. This is like maybe the second time in my life I've been on an airplane. And uh, this is, of course, way before 9-11. So, I mean, it's still a little freaky, uh, you know, with uh, airport check security, I guess, checkpoint. But um, it's not as bad as it is today. So I throw my backpack on the little thing, the conveyor belt, and I'm just bebopping through, you know. And all of a sudden, the conveyor belt stops. I mean, it just stops. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what happened over there, you know. And I'm looking up. And I look up on this giant monitor. Remember, they have a TV on top of the x-ray thing where you could see the x-rays. And I look up, and I'm like, geez, that looks like a bomb. I mean, it's like just electronics and wires and everything. And then I'm like, oh, my God, that's my backpack. <laughs> it is my backpack that is filled with network cards and cables and all this stuff. And so I start walking over to the x-ray, and I'm like, hey, 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 that's my bag or whatever. And this security guy says, sir, stop right there. And I'm, I mean, I'm like, okay, I'm kind of stopping, but I'm like, point, I'm still walking towards the x-ray thing. And I'm like, yeah, that's my stuff. And I'm pointing and that guard grabbed me and pushed me up against the x-ray thing. I mean, maybe slam is too harsh of a word, but really forcefully pressed my face against the x-ray machine. And my face is up against the thing. I'm like, that is my backpack. And, um, so anyway, they did, uh, pull the backpack out. I, maybe some dogs sniffed it. I don't remember, but, um, it turns out you should not just randomly fill your bag full of wires and circuit boards. Um, they do tend to frown on that, but the good news is I did get to keep my stuff. It didn't make it back to Oklahoma. And, um, I had two computers and gosh, I'm trying to think here if this was 95, um, I know I did not have a Pentium computer. So I had, um, I think I had a 48666 and a 486, uh, a DX4 100, which was a badass machine. I actually still have that machine in my garage. Um, and uh, maybe my 386, I don't know. And so I tossed all these network cards into things and I got them all networking and I got networked, um, you know, so I could boot up off this boot disk and I could copy things back. And I was so happy. I was like, oh my, this is great. I mean, these things are connected now. Look at these wires. I had no real purpose for having a network at that point, but it was just the fact that everything was networked. Everything was connected to everything, and life was good. Um, I later, uh, I, I want to say one of those machines was where, uh, running Windows and one was running DOS, um, but I had worked at a point in time uh, I always, whenever I start telling a story like this, I immediately go, I wonder if the statute of limitations of this is up. And I think it is. Um, but I had worked at Long John Silver's and, um, in the, we had a computer there that was used to upload the daily sales or something. And there was a, uh, a little packet to like, I guess, reload the computer, like a recovery thing. And inside the packet was a set of 
Windows for work groups, floppy disks. Uh, and it was like, I think regular Windows was six disks and Windows for work groups was eight floppy disks, if I remember right. And it had a serial number on it. And so I had uh, taken those and made copies of them and loaded my home machine with Windows for work groups, which had networking built in. So once I had that on both my computers, they could talk to each other and copy files back and forth. The only bad thing about this was that the splash screen, when I loaded my machine, said Windows for work groups, and then it said Long John Silvers. <laughs> so they had branded it somehow. Uh, so anyway, I, I had my own Long John Silvers network at the house, apparently, but... Um, uh, yeah, once I had Windows for work groups, it was like you could copy files back and forth and do these little things. Again, I had no practical purpose for doing this, but it was just um, learning about networks and learning about, you know, things like name resolution and host files and LM host files and all that good stuff that um, now uh, networking people, well, a lot of it's archaic at this point, but, um, uh, you know, just knowing how to put a, a gateway so the two machines would see each other, the same subnet mask or whatever, um, it was, uh, it was learning, you know, it was learning about networks. Um, I'm trying to think of other, you know, uh, I remember having to, I think one of the cards was set for like half duplex and one was full duplex. And, you know, and like I said, it's just things that we take uh, for granted now today, but, um, that was, uh, was, um, how I learned a lot of that stuff. Uh, eventually, um, we began, dialing up to the internet. I mean, this is a few years later. I got my first dial up. I, I think it was in, uh, I'd moved to Spokane by this point and I got a dial up, uh, connection. And this was, I'd, I'd upgraded at this point. I had a 33, six modem. I want to say no, nah, I probably was still 28, eight, but, uh, but I could dial up to the internet. And what I found was, uh, at first through internet connection sharing. And then, um, later, I think there were third party. I think I ran some kind of program to do this, but you could share, your dial-up connection across multiple machines if they were networked together. So I would have, at this point, I had like three computers for no particular reason. And one of them would dial up to the internet. And then the other two, since it was all networked together, would use that computer's connection. So they were all on the internet. I was splitting a 28-8 dial-up connection three ways. So... Um, as far as bandwidth stuff, not good, but I had one machine that I had like all my important like stuff on, like I had IRC, like the chat stuff and FTP. And so I would run that on one machine. And so it wouldn't take up the processing power or whatever that, you know, on the other machine. So I just had one that all it was done, you know, all it would do is make that network connection. So, um, it wasn't, um, I don't think it was until, I moved back to Oklahoma uh, and started really doing, uh, you know, more advanced networking stuff that I decided I needed a server at my house because everybody needs a server at their house. And uh, some people think that's ridiculous and other people think, well, obviously, like, what? why would you not have a server? Uh, and sadly, I'm in the second group there. So, um, uh, and you know what drove me to uh, install a server was I had a machine die. Uh, the hard drive died. I came in, I turned it on, and just did the click of death, and um, wouldn't boot, and I lost everything. I lost all my stuff that was on it. And <clears throat> I started thinking, like, at work, that doesn't happen, and the reason why is because we put all of our data in a central location, a server, and we back it up. So I was like, you know what? That's what I want to do at my house. I want to set up a server, 
and I'll have it run DHCP and I'll do all these things, you know, and, and basically I was mimicking my work environment, but I would set up a server at the house and then, uh, I would set up a home drive. And so no matter what computer I logged into, which at that point would have been like two other computers, I could go to my home drive and, and access my files and stuff. And so, um, that's what I did. I set up a server and, um, you know, put a bit, my biggest hard drive, I put it in there and then, um, you know, so then I had to take all my other computers and join it to the domain. This is probably a windows 2000 server, I would guess. And, um, then you would log in and you would get your H drive, your home drive, and that would be all my files. And so then I only had to worry about backing up my files from one location. And I actually bought a, um, God, what were those things? Maybe a power quest. I don't know. It was a, um, like a little external SCSI tape drive. Uh, and I put a SCSI card in my server and I would run tape backups. And I thought I was big stuff, you know, because, um, I would have these little back tape backups and, and do little things like that. And, um, again, this is really just mimicking, you know, the things that, that we were doing at work. So, uh, it wasn't like I needed to do a lot of this stuff. It was just, I was doing it, you know, for practice, but, um, eventually, uh, I started building um, RAID drives, like RAID 5. Uh, you know, I put a bunch of drives together and RAID them together so that you have redundancy. So in case you lose a hard drive, you could just replace that hard drive. And so that's where I began storing my files. And that's actually what I do today. Um, I also do, and this is getting off more into backups, but I do um, backup to an external hard drive. So I have a... Um, Schedule task that runs every day. I use Robocopy just because uh, I love Robocopy. It's a command line utility and it does differential copies. So it will run once a day and it checks and any files that have changed, it copies those over to um, my external hard drive. So it's a lot better than uh, running a, a tape uh, home backup system, a lot faster, more convenient as well. And a lot of people now do cloud backups and I haven't made the leap into that, but um uh, and if you're willing to spend a few bucks a month or a year or whatever, it certainly seems like a viable solution to back your stuff up. You know, the, uh, when it comes to disaster recovery, you have to think big. Um, in other words, you say, well, I back up my things, you know, from this computer to this hard drive. That's great until your house burns down or a tornado destroys your town, which are morbid things to think about. But, um, at the level of it that I do, I do have to think about those things. I have to think about, uh, a town disappearing, uh, or, you know, going offline and being unavailable. So, uh, again, as far as backup things, I've taken, um, you know, the things that I do at work and, and brought those home. But, um, anyway, back to networks, I, uh, started adding machines to my network and I started adding servers and I added a web server, uh, actually, no, that's not true. This is what I did. I built my server and I put every possible role on that server. So I had a server that was also my web server. That was also my, what I would call a file and print server, like where I put my, my home directories and my files and all that. And it was also my mail server. And it was also uh, my media server and everything that I wanted to do in a server. It was on that server. And then my web server got hacked. And when they hacked my web server... I say they, I'm just like they, whoever they are out there. When they hacked my web server, they got access to everything else on my server. They got access to all my emails that I had archived. And they got access to all my pictures of my children. And they got access to everything else. And this is a lesson that I should have known from work. 
Because at work, what we do is we divide up roles onto different servers. So you don't put a website on your domain controller. You don't put a, a you know a bunch of public shares also on your SQL server. You don't mix and match those things. Unfortunately, the other solution for me would have been to own a bunch of different servers. And so I did, you know, I decided to separate out my roles. I bought another machine and I turned that into my web server and then I bought another machine. But eventually, you know, my wife is coming upstairs wanting to know why, first of all, my room is, you know, 90 degrees. And second of all, why our electricity bill has doubled over the last month. Eventually what happened, though, was the introduction of virtual servers, virtual machines. And so if you're not familiar with virtual machines or maybe you've heard about them, but you don't have a lot of experience, virtual machines are machines. They're computers, they're entire computers, but they run kind of like in a little, their own little sandbox, maybe I guess you would say on a virtual server host. And uh, so instead of having four machines that all have, you know, let's say four gigs of RAM and, and hard drive space, you buy one really big machine with 16 gigs of RAM, and then you could set up all your little virtual machines on there. And actually, you, you could probably get away with something like eight gigs of RAM because those machines, unless they're all being utilized, aren't using all their RAM all the time. So you can kind of fudge a little bit on your, um, on your specs and on your hardware. Uh, and that is what I eventually set up, and that's what I have today. So I have a big server with a ton of drive space. I have two different uh, – I say a ton. It was a ton a few years ago when I built it. Now it doesn't seem to be that big. Um, but I have two 6-terabyte uh, RAIDs that hang off there. One is just media, uh, movies and music and ebooks and all that kind of good stuff. And the other one is home directories and pictures and all that stuff. And then I do have, um, backups that run, uh, for my pictures on a nightly basis or for my whole home drive really to external, um, you know, so in case there is a fire here, I don't have to run out of the house with my whole everything. I can just grab that external drive and that external drive gets backed up. Uh, it's in a rotation. So there's a copy of it here and there's a copy of it at work. Uh, and I do switch those out uh, on a weekly basis. So uh, in theory, if my house blows up tomorrow, then I would still have uh, a backup that's no more than a week old. Um, but I do still have a web server and I still have a mail server and I have these other things, but they're all virtual now and they run on this one server. And those virtual machines also get backed up. So I'm very much into backups. I, I don't like losing data. Um, but uh, that stuff is all networked and now... Uh, I mean, the biggest advent in networking in the past five or 10 years, I would say, is wireless. So when I started playing around with networks, everything had to be wired. You had to put a card in and you had to run a wire. And, and uh, you know, in my other house, I had a, uh, a media server hooked up to my TV downstairs, but my server was upstairs. And I literally had to run cable down through the wall and make a little hole and poke this cable out so I could plug it into this server and, and do all this. And then when I got wireless, my wireless wasn't fast enough to stream uh, movies across across the um, wireless. But today, everything uh, <laughs> everything's wireless. Um, I mean, I have a laptop upstairs. I have a laptop downstairs. My wife has her laptop. My son has his laptop. We have uh, uh, all kinds of iPads and, and iPhones, and, all, and it's all wireless. So it's all networked together. It all comes through the wireless router, and eventually, um, you know, my server, of course, is wired uh, to the the router. Um, but uh, 
Uh, and then in my my actual server room, uh, I've got a eight port switch, and I'm trying to think what all's hooked up to that. I mean, I've got a couple computers in there. The PlayStation's wired to that. Um, you know, at one point I had a, a hub that was or a switch that was just for um, you know the Xbox and the PS2 and the PS3, and you know, so I mean, and today everything. Everything is connected on the network, and, and we're starting to see what they call um, the Internet of Things. I don't know if you've seen that term, uh, but that is, you know, the next generation of things like appliances, like refrigerators and and uh, washing machines and uh, home, uh, your deadbolt. I've seen the deadbolt uh, hookup, but this is uh, all these things talking on the on the internet so that they're accessible from your phone or remotely. But the way all that works is that it has to connect to your home network first, and then it networks out to the internet to a, a server that's reachable publicly. So we have come a long way since, uh, you know, like I said, those first networks, the, the very first, uh, uh, you know, the desire to hook up two machines with lap link so that I could copy a file that was too big to fit on a floppy. Um, you know, and that was, um, I mean, you could say 94 and here we are 20 years later and now, uh, files that, you know, would fit on multiple floppies or this and that. Now I just email them or copy them over the wireless. Now, I mean, files that are unfathomably, unfathomably unfathomable unbelievably i don't know uh files that are that um seem gigantic i mean 20 years ago who could have imagined 800 meg movie files and moving those around like they're nothing you know um or pictures <laughs> the the pictures that i mean the um uh i have an 8 gig SD card in my camera that I fill up, you know, every now and then. And I dump all those pictures off and the thought of eight gig of storage just for pictures, uh, you know, uh, the thought of eight gig, <laughs> uh, it was just mind blowing back then. So, um, uh, but yeah, we're at the point now where, um, uh, everything seems to be networked together. And, uh, uh, even if you, you have a peer to peer wireless network or, um, you know, anything like that, it, it's, um, come a long way from just wanting to do it and playing games, you know, for the, being the, the basic purpose to copying a file to having, you know, everything be online today. So I think that pretty much sums up my history of networking. Uh, I've got networking on the brain right now from this, uh, certification, but I'm, I feel like I've, I've flushed it out and, um, now we can move on next week to another topic. That wraps up another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you'd like to send me feedback about this episode or any other episode of You Don't Know Flack, you can email me at robohara at robohara.com. Contact me on Twitter at Commodork. Follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash you don't know flack. That's all one word. Or leave me voicemail on the You Don't Know Flack podcast hotline at area code 405-486-YDKF. You Don't Know Flack is available from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, the You Don't Know Flack RSS feed, and through throwbacknetwork.net, your home for quality retro podcasts. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from me, check out my Commodore 64 theme podcast, Sprite Castle, at spritecastle.com, and Throwback Reviews at throwbackreviews.com. Both of these shows are also available at throwbacknetwork.net. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on another episode of You Don't Know Flat. Thank you.